0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Julia Minson, an associate professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She is a decision scientist with research interests in conflict, negotiations, and decision-making. Her primary line of research involves the psychology of disagreement. How do people engage with opinions, judgments, and decisions that are different from their own? I'm joined by 15 of my Harvard classmates.
1: class of 63 like most of you um, living in Newton Massachusetts working TV and video and writing uh, most of my life still doing some of that and very much interested in the whole you know idea of the psychology of disagreement because um, of working in climate movement and you're always having to persuade people so love to pick up some tips <laughs> okay Nick, Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass, uh, class of 63 and a uh, little trip around the world, business school, uh, two years in India, and Peace Corps, and then come back and uh, uh, investments, trusts, and wills, that sort of thing in Boston.
2: Um, hi, I'm Doug Shapiro living in Louisville. Um, I've spent most of my life uh, doing various aspects of uh, medicine, medical science, drug development, and animal behavioral ecology uh, and uh, I'm now struggling to keep my my mind alive uh, at the same time dealing with all the usual uh, issues and problems that had to do with with our age.
3: (laughs) Dave Allen, David. Uh, Concord Mass, of course, class of 63, uh, but my soul is out there in Southern Indiana across from Doug, where I went to high school, many, 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 many moons ago. I've had a pastiche of a life, uh, business, academics, but, uh, the last couple of decades, uh, activism globally and locally for democracy. And by God, we had a win last night, big time, my God.
1: Yeah, okay, good, great. Marcy. <laughs> I'm
4: in New York City running a nonprofit public policy and public spending priorities group and archiving documents. And my question will be, um, how is democracy defined by all the people and groups you mentioned?
5: Okay, all right. Peter. So Pete DeLisavoy, I'm an editor and writer, and I live up in Northern New Hampshire. And I think I've, maybe all Americans, but I think I've lived much of my life amongst people I disagree with, (laughs)
6: with the exception of
0: this group.
7: You're a Yankee.
0: (laughs) Okay, uh, John.
7: Oh, hi. John
3: Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was editing and writing for the university for
6: a number of years. And before that, doing the same in Chicago, New York, but now happily retired. <laughs>
0: David Othmer.
1: Uh, David Othmer, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I too went like Bill. I went around the world for a year after I graduated from college, and like him, went to the Harvard Business School after that. <clears throat> and since then, I've, I've worked mainly in public broadcasting and. Uh, New York and in Philadelphia. I grew up in South America,
6: however, uh, and that's it.
7: Hi, David McGregor from Queens, Um, in
6: architecture and urban design for many years and then got interested in conciliation, arbitration and mediation. So I certainly want to hear about how we get rid of disagreements. Okay, Liz. (laughs)
8: Hi, um, I'm also class of 63. <clears throat> I identify as a Californian because that's where I'm from. But for the last 15 years, I've lived in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right outside of D.C. I'm a almost completely retired clinical psychologist, which means that I deal with conflict every day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Alden.
9: Uh, Alden Briscoe, also class of 63. Um, I, uh, unlike some of you, I went around the world in, in two weeks once on business. <laughs> um, uh, my wife and I have a, a company which uh, consults with nonprofits in fundraising and executive search.
0: Hey, Ken, Ken Manister.
7: Hi, uh, Ken Manister. I'm uh, originally from the south side of Chicago, uh, also Harvard class was 63. I'm a retired professor of environmental law, uh, mostly at Santa Clara University. Um, I, uh, As these folks know, because I made a presentation on it a year or more ago, I wrote a book, came out just a few years ago called uh, The American Legal System and Civic Engagement subtitled why we all should think like lawyers and uh it attempts to translate um the uh more or less ideal version of the legal system as a way of dealing with persuasion and disagreement uh to translate it into guidance for the ordinary citizen dealing with public issues so these folks have already heard my uh my take on that, but I, I can't resist mentioning uh, to you, Julia, is, uh, something that I think is relevant uh, and perhaps of interest. Uh, Hampton Howell,
5: class of 63, uh, once of New York and, and uh, Boston since then, uh, now in Nashville and uh, Brazil, Puerto Rico, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> Uh I I don't think we should ever think like our lawyers, Ken. I think we should think like uh uh ADHD people like me and, and, and internalize the uh 60s. <laughs>
4: I'm
7: I'm gonna remove your blurb from the back of the book. Yeah. <laughs> you said a lot nicer things before. Right.
9: <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I'm I'm glad to hear of Ken's book. I had I hadn't uh been part of the uh Part of this group when 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 you presented it, Ken. So um, thanks. I, I I want to know more about it. Uh, anyway, I'm in. Uh, I was originally I'm born in Chicago. I, I was born in Chicago. Uh, Harvard, '63. Um, a lot of work in Latin America. First as a community organizer, then as a sociologist, and now I'm living in Spain and writing fiction. Okay,
0: George Allen.
6: I live in Los Angeles now. I've uh, I've been mostly a trial lawyer in federal courts for uh, more than 50 years. Uh, Almost all of the important work I've done has uh, been complex litigation against various agencies of US government or major contractors, uh, sometimes in class action litigation, which means I've had the. Justice Department on the other side every time uh, or almost every time, and uh, its client, which is usually the Defense Department, sometimes other agencies. Uh, okay. and I'm fascinated to hear about this because uh, we've had some successes. We've also had some failures uh, but uh, uh, I just uh, I, I want to hear about. Okay. how to go about way to the other side. All right, good. Yeah, yeah, Bill Collins, uh, grew up in Boston, Harvard 63, and part of this group for a while, and uh, living in South Carolina, Yankee Transplant. Bye. Okay. I'll stay on as long as I can. <laughs> All right,
0: good. Bye. And Professor Minson, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome, and tell us about your work, your, your book, and that beer commercial you talked about. <laughs>
4: Uh, Well, thank you very much for having me. Please call me Julia. Um, So I am actually a first generation immigrant from Russia. I came to the States when I was 12 um, Mm. and I was in the Harvard class of 99. uh, So a few years after you folks, Um, Mm. I did my PhD (laughs) at Stanford in social psychology. I taught briefly at UPenn at the Wharton School. Um, and then I've been, uh, on the faculty at the Kennedy school for nine years now, I believe time, time flies. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so a lot of my work, uh, really deals with, uh, you know, what I call the psychology of disagreement. Um, looking at sort of how people relate and engage with views that they strongly oppose, um. Mm -hmm how we process that kind of information, uh, how we respond to it. And, you know, more recently, how we can be better at engaging with people on the other side of various divides. I don't have a book, by the way. I'm going to have a book one day. (laughs) I can tell you about some things that will go into the book. (laughs)
6: Let's hear it.
4: So, you know, there's this sort of interesting tension when people talk about disagreement. Um, And I think the tension is that uh, especially, you know, those of you folks who've been in the business sector a lot, uh, you will recognize sort of, you know, there's this idea that disagreement is very productive, right, that we want people with opposing perspectives, we want people with opposing points of view, uh, this is something that we think is really important to democratic functioning. This is something that's important to uh, better decision-making in you know, all sorts of business contexts or more accurate forecasting, overcoming uh, overconfidence that a lot of people are plagued by. So disagreement is supposed to be really good. Um, on the other hand, we all know <laughs> That when you're actually confronted with somebody who disagrees with you, it's generally an unpleasant experience, right? So there's this uh, interesting tension where we say that something is good for us, uh, and yet the experience of it is almost invariably negative. And, you know, it's interesting to think about the psychology that makes it so negative, right? Why are we so Uh, Opposed to engaging with people that we disagree with. um, And why, you know, when are the situations where it goes better versus goes badly? Um, And then how do we fix it? Mm. So, you know, how do we give people sort of the tools and the skill sets to have more productive conversations uh, with folks that they strongly disagree with? So, those would be the three parts of the book. It would be disagreement is good but why do we hate it so much
6: and how do we do it better?
5: I'm thinking you must have had to internalize Russia and the United States inside your own soul. And this is a perfect uh, thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis.
3: (laughs) Right on, man. (laughs) Maybe,
5: maybe we'll see. What's the story, Julia?
4: Well, you know, so it's it's interesting, right? So I, I came to the States uh, in 1990. I spent my childhood in Russia. Um, but my, my mother's side of the family is all Ukrainian. So she grew up in Ukraine oh, uh, she- and moved to Russia back when it was, you know, all the Soviet Union, right? So it was one country, uh, but she moved from Ukraine to Russia to go to college because of the sort of incredible level of anti-Semitism that was very prevalent in Ukraine at the time. So my father is Russian, but I don't really know him. Um, And I was raised by my mother's side of the family. That's all Ukrainian Jews. uh, And I spent all my summers in Ukraine with my Ukrainian aunts. And none of that mattered to me at all. I speak, you know, I speak fluent Russian, I don't speak a word of Ukrainian um, until this year, which <laughs> suddenly started mattering a great deal. Um, so, so that's been, that's been an interesting, an interesting twist, twist oh. in my life. Uh, my grandmother lives with me. me. She's is 93. Oh, my she grew up in Ukraine. She lived most of her life in Ukraine. But she speaks Russian, and you know she never thought of herself as Ukrainian. So the identities, the identities in that part of the world are very, very complicated and mixed up. Mm-hmm. Ken, you've got a hand raised?
7: yeah, i'm just I'm just wondering when you when you uh, give the the broad contours of 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 what you're looking at, what you would write about. Are you focusing on sort of the, the psychology of the individual, uh, how the individual reacts to disagreement? Um, um, that's, you know, that, that's different from what I attempted to do, although in one chapter I did sort of give, uh, give some attention to uh, sort of the unavoidable um, um, human inc- inclinations to have trouble with uh, with disagreement, but I, I wonder if you could tell us more about sort of the the orientation—is it look it sort of institutional changes, structural changes, cultural patterns, or individual psychology?
4: Yeah, so uh, very much individual psychology. Okay. So I'm a social psychologist by training. Both my you know Harvard undergrad and my Stanford PhD were in, in experimental social psychology, um, and so the paradigm we use, right, to do research is running uh, randomized controlled experiments. Uh, So, you know, everything I have to say about anything uh, usually comes from an experiment we ran where we, you know, presented people with information that they agree with or disagree with, and then saw what they did with it, or, you know, randomly assigned people to act in one way or in another way in you know an interaction and saw sort of who had a better experience Mm -hmm. my you know the way i think about it a lot so a lot of my work has been on what i call receptiveness to opposing views which is basically a you know Mm -hmm. both a mindset and also a style of interaction Mm -hmm. where you you know, work really hard to try to understand people on the other side, as well as you understand people on your own side. Um, And an argument that I've made recently that we have now a little bit of data for um, is to say that even though receptiveness is sort of an individual behavior and an individual characteristic, it is certainly impacted by the behavior and the characteristic of the person in front of you. Right. So if you think about a typical situation where you disagree with somebody and what are the features of the situation that affect your behavior, the most salient feature of that kind of situation is going to be the person you're disagreeing with. Right. And so if you are trying to be receptive to them and they're being, you know, very argumentative or very confrontational, you are going to have a much harder time being receptive than if they are also mirroring your behavior. And so then, you could imagine from that, if you if you can make sort of the argument that two people impact each other's receptiveness, and we know that you know social norms are a very sort of powerful uh, driver of behavior. We know that habits are a very powerful driver of behavior. You could imagine going from I'm impacting you and you're impacting me. We now have a certain set of habits and a culture within our relationship of how we interact with each other, right? And then you could imagine that sort of mushrooming, right? So if we are in an organization or if we're in a family or if we're on a university campus, if you have enough people taking up a certain style of interaction, it becomes a localized culture of receptiveness or lack thereof. Right. So in my in my mind, in my dreams, we can get enough people to be sufficiently receptive to opposing perspectives that we can start having much more civil conversations uh, as a culture and as a society. But really, my research focus is on the individual level and on interactions, usually dyadic interactions between individuals.
8: And uh, very interested in your research, obviously. So. I think at least from my point of view, when you were talked about the three uh, sections of your book, I immediately kind of jumped to section three, which is kind of, where do we go from here and how do we make things better? Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. And I'm also, I'm thinking about um, what you've found in your results that either surprises you or just, just kind of doesn't, doesn't fit with your way of thinking about it, you know, paradoxical results. Um, And um, I think that a lot of, uh, certainly me, uh, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about formal ways of being more receptive, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, things like restorative justice, things like Marshall Rosenberg's work. Um, These are all things that I've taken in, and I think many of us have. And I think that the issue of how do you go from the individual to the culture um, is important. And I I just wanted to add one more thing, which is I'm wondering, you know, when you're talking about dyadic interactions, um, the issue of status differences, the issue of power differential, what your thoughts are on that. Mm -hmm. Oh, so many things. So Liz, you are, you said you're a Therapist, correct? Um, yeah, I'm a I'm am I'm I'm an almost retired clinical psychologist. An almost retired clinical psychologist. Yeah. Okay. Right.
4: So, you know, so I think a lot of what I've been doing recently has been looking at how do we create more receptive interactions, and the thing that I found the most surprising that has really sort of caused a pivot in my work. Is that we started out years ago by creating uh, an individual difference scale, right? Sort of like a psychological assessment of receptiveness to opposing views as a personality trait. And so we spent years developing the scale and validating the scale and showing that it predicts, you know, how people process information and you know publish the paper on it. And then finally, we said, okay. Now that we know how to identify receptive people, surely if we put them in conversations with people they disagree with, they're going to do better because we have a scale that tells us that they're more receptive. Um, And uh, at the Kennedy School, we have a lot of executive education programs, which allows me to sometimes do research on people who are not Harvard undergraduates, right? So these are like actual adults, <laughs> with actual careers who have strong, well-informed opinions. Uh, and because I teach them, one of the things that I ask for is, you know, if I'm going to come teach in your program, can I please collect data on the participants? Mm.
6: Um,
4: and so we were able to do these studies where we put um, we were put people in conversations, uh, assigned them a topic. Uh, to discuss that we know a priority they strongly disagree on. Uh, And then we, you know, asked them how receptive they were, we asked them how receptive they thought their counterpart was. Um, And in the beginning, we just got a whole lot of nothing. We saw absolutely no difference in how people who claimed to be more receptive were evaluated by their counterparts. And, you know, my first sort of insecure, anxious thought was, oh my God, the scale is broken, (laughs) you know, but of course we know the scale isn't broken because we had a bunch of studies that had validated the scale. And so what we figured out over time is that there's a real difference between sort of feeling receptive in your head and being able to express it in behavior.
6: Hmm.
4: And that's what people seem to really struggle with. So, what we ultimately ended up doing is doing a lot of uh, computational linguistics work to try <coughs> to understand what are the words and phrases that people can say, irrespective of how they actually feel about it, uh, that make their counterpart feel heard. That make Your, their counterpart feel Herd. like you're feel Herd. heard. Herd. Heard. Heard. H oh, E A R D. Heard. Heard. Oh, heard.
6: Oh. Herd. Okay. Right. Thanks.
4: Exactly. Exactly. So the idea is that instead of telling people to sort of think differently or feel differently, right, you should take the other person's point of view, you should exercise intellectual humility, you should consider their perspective, we are kind of pivoting to say, look, we're all trying to be decent people, we're all trying to take other people's point of view, but sometimes we can't find the right words. So let me like spoon feed you the right words and you just say them, (laughs) okay? Uh, And we'll give you a little shortcut, a little cheat sheet for how to sound more receptive. So this is the thing, the question is how can you sort of use language to Mm -hmm. convince people that you are engaged with their perspective? And what people do a lot, this is sort of, you know what you see a lot in like corporate training is they things like, they say things like I hear you, Mm -hmm. but then they very clearly didn't hear you. (laughs) So, <laughs> so usually to make I hear you convincing, you need to follow yeah. it up with some restatement of what they just said to actually prove behaviorally that you heard them. Right. right. I hear that blah 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 is really important to you. Is that right? Yeah.
6: Right.
4: So um, so you know, and a lot of it is things that clinical psychologists know, <laughs> professional mediators know. Successful diplomats know people who have been in therapy for many years know right, but we are trying to make it easy and accessible to people who, you know, see it on Instagram, right? So can we make it quick and easy so we can spread the word? Essentially, mm-hmm. um, so to me, that was the most surprising thing about the research is just recognizing the huge disconnect between people's intentions and people's behavior.
9: Holden. Um, this may not, well, when I say something, I generally say, I hear you, you son of a bitch. Uh,
6: <laughs> <laughs>
4: does,
9: that, does, that, does that work? <laughs>
6: um,
9: since you're it, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't tend to work, okay. Well, maybe that's a problem. Um, your research tends to be on individuals, it sounds like, and I'm thinking of a more societal issue. So this may it may be an unfair question, but you know, Patrick Moynihan said, you know, everyone is entitled to his own uh, ideas on uh, ideas, but not to their his own facts. Um, and do you get a sense, uh, societally, that? people are more uh, strident, more uh, divided because they have their own facts now?
4: I I think, yes, I think so. Um, And I think, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who study this question. A lot of it obviously has to do with the media ecosystem, right? So to the extent that everybody can, choose their own source of information instead of, you know, the four major networks, right. And surround themselves with other people who share their beliefs. Um, If you think about it from sort of a psychological point of view, it makes sense to believe something when everybody, you know, believes that thing. Mm -hmm. And the New York times is the only one saying the opposite right so if I am in a you know <clears throat> small conservative town or not even a small conservative town but if I'm in a different part of the country where people are surrounded with other like-minded folks which is what social media allows us to do uh, it is not unreasonable to believe what the people who are around you who you trust believe. Um, I read a really nice piece in the Atlantic a few months ago when they were talking about um, Trump rallies. And uh, the idea that you know, people who go to a Trump rally are surrounded with thousands of Trump supporters. And most of us are just incredibly, incredibly bad at dealing with very large numbers in our minds. So when you are in you know, a crowded park or a crowded town square and there's a couple thousand people there, it kind of feels like the whole world. You know, and so when you're in that situation sort of surrounded by hundreds of bodies that are all screaming for, you know, President Trump, it's really hard to imagine that this isn't the overwhelming majority of the country. So I think social media uh, and just sort of the changes in the ecosystem have given people the experience of everybody agrees with me. Um, And then it's really, really hard to
6: believe something different. Okay. Uh, Doug. Um, yeah,
2: I have a couple of things that I'd like to mention. Uh, the first is that it seems to me that there, there are certain issues uh, on which it's almost impossible for uh, people on uh, two side opposing sides of the issues to agree upon it. And um so the, the the issue that comes to mind most prominently has to do with abortion, and it, it seems to me that uh, people who oppose abortion are primarily coming from—they're uh, taking stances which are basically ethical, religious, or moral in nature, uh, whereas the people who uh, are in favor of abortion. Uh, are uh, individuals who uh, want to have complete control over what goes on in their own bodies uh, and feel like uh, what's happening there belongs to them and it, it should not be susceptible to um, uh, you know other people's religious and moral uh, viewpoints. So. It's hard for me to see how bringing people together and trying to make them get along with each other and understand each other better and so forth and so on for an issue like this is really going to help them resolve the issue. They're still going to, I think, oppose each other unless you can convince them to come around to your way of thinking about things. Um, anyway, I'd just like to see what you have to think of, say about that.
4: So, uh, you know, one of the things I found interesting was when, uh, everyone was introducing themselves, I think I counted three, maybe four occurrences of people asking about better persuasion techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anyone said anything about better understanding techniques. Uh-huh. Um, I I only study understanding techniques. I don't study persuasion techniques. <laughs> Um, And I think that's actually a fundamental problem with the way we relate to each other. I think most of the time when you encounter a person you disagree with, there is almost a reflexive and incredibly powerful desire to change their mind. Um, Liz, I would be curious to hear your ideas about where that comes from, because I've spent a long time thinking about why is that feeling so strong? (laughs) I think disagreement is good. I don't want to make people agree. I don't want to make people compromise. Um, I think we should have a diversity of perspectives and opinions. If a thing is very important, we should be debating it. Um, What I do think is the problem is when we demonize people who disagree with us. Uh, and when we sort of stereotype them as ignorant or evil or, you know, ill-intentioned or misinformed. Uh, and so we don't take their perspective seriously or don't think about where it really comes from. Um, with abortion, there is a lot of complexity in how people both sides on both sides feel about it. Beyond, Like, I think I think you described two mm-hmm. pillars that are somewhat representative of the two sides. I'm not sure how representative they really are. I think there's a lot more heterogeneity on both sides, just like there's a huge amount of heterogeneity of opinion on guns, just like there's a huge amount of heterogeneity of opinion on immigration. And there's a surprising amount actually of overlap. And I think one of the things that happens when people talk to each other, is they come to see the overlap. They come to recognize that there's a lot more similarity than we give ourselves credit for as a country. Uh, And I think they come to recognize what are the experiences and backgrounds and sort of deep convictions that have led thinking, well-meaning people to hold opinions that you might strongly disagree with. Mm. And I think that's useful because then, you know, we can continue to debate abortion, but we can then reach an agreement on, you know, monetary policy without screaming at each other. And that would be good. So that's kind of my goal. I don't want everybody to reach agreement. I just want people to kind of see where the other person is coming from.
1: Ronnie, um, Picking up on what you said about that we want to find out how to persuade people better. Um, I think, Let's say in the climate movement, I think we really, let's say those of us are who are, for um, trying to cut down on the increased heat, um, certainly understand the other side because it's trumpeted to us all the time. So that's not really the issue. I think in some cases, and maybe this is not your area, uh, persuasion is what it needs to be about what it needs to be about because on the one side you have politics on the other side and and financial interests on the other side you have physics as people say it's not a you know the climate issue is not fundamentally about politics it's about physics and whether you pay attention to that so i th- i th- think there are different categories of disagreement you know if if we're talking about water rights and the you know, the agricultural community is on the one side and all the consumers, you know, people who live in towns without much water are on the other side, then, you know, that's one kind of disagreement. But I think climate is different. And I think abortion is fundamentally different because you're talking about, you have positions in two different kinds of reality. So I'm wondering what you you would say about the kinds of disagreements that people have
4: i think disagreements on different issues are you know different in many many ways right so some disagreements are more emotional some disagreements are more religious some disagreements have you know more science some disagreements affect all of us versus others only just you know affect a small minority of us so any one issue has you know seven different dimensions that make it different from all the other issues I think that one thing that they do in fact have in common is that truly understanding the other side helps. And when I say the other side, I'm making the same mistake of treating it as like a monolithic entity, right? But in some sense, you know, I mean, you're the climate expert, not me certainly. So I might say things that sound silly, but I would, I would not think that the goal is to get people to understand the physics. The goal is to get, or to even agree with the physics, right? The goal is to get people to change behavior. The goal is to pass legislation. The goal is to get people to vote for the people who will pass the legislation, right? And so understanding what the barriers are is really important if you're going to change people's behavior. And writing it off as we have the science and you know they have the political interests is usually what makes people say, you know, liberals are condescending, and I don't want to talk to them because I don't like being condescended to. Um, so so I think understanding sort of so I, I teach negotiations at the Kennedy School, and in negotiations, we spend a lot of time talking about zero sum issues versus, of integrative issues where you can find joint value i often think about persuasion as a zero sum influence approach if you are persuaded then i've won and you've lost and if i'm persuaded then i've lost and you've won and because nobody enjoys losing nobody wants to be persuaded and so we're in this sort of tug of war situation whereas understanding the other side's preferences and priorities and barriers to change and you know convictions and experiences is sort of a bottomless you know a bottomless thing that everyone can have more of and so I think that creates then an environment where we can find options that we're okay with you know I will agree to this legislation, but not this legislation. I will, you know, recycle, but not install solar panels. I will get a hybrid, but I will not give up, you know, my airplane trip to California, right? So if you understand people's priorities, you have an opportunity to get somewhere, I think more readily than kind of the endless push and pull.
1: Sure. And I I would say that it doesn't have to have any tone of condescension um, for any number of reasons. I mean, you can argue for the climate without being condescending.
4: Yes, I agree with you. And I think think one of the things that has, um, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot with receptiveness is uh, certain issues that are taboo for different people. And it used to be that having more issues that are taboo was correlated with conservatism because there were certain things that were like, you know, ethics and morals and sort of the word of God that were not to be debated. And what I've seen over time is now liberals have so many things that we just do not debate because it is absolutely right. And I refuse to engage on it. That I think that has, I think that has served you know, I think that has served a lot of the liberal causes poorly um, because they're just topics we refuse to engage on and, uh, and kind of paint ourselves into a corner on.
5: Mm. Yeah. uh This has set off a lot of things for me, like I think it has for a, a lot of us. And uh, <clears throat> this morning, I, uh, I've been married to Emily for 23 years. She's my fourth wife. And my uh, uh, daughters are coming differently uh, over uh, the Christmas vacation and I I observed again to Emily how harmoniously she talks with people in her family and how whenever she and I talk uh, she finds what I'm saying she disagrees with uh, what I'm saying and I I think uh, you're smiling Julia i' I'm, I'm thinking that uh, of that. The, the way I understand it the uh, best is uh Joseph Richlack's uh thinking, and I can't think of of the, of, this, of the the, the other poll. One of them is dialectical thinking, and what is the other one? It's like John Locke and uh it's more materialistic or uh anyway uh, it, it's it's also like uh, uh, uh the other one is more materialistic and more black and white.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: And, and she's more black and white. She gets very impatient with my uh, talking around Robin Hood's barn. And my 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 daughter, who's coming here first, thinks that I uh, love my other daughter more because the,
6: uh,
5: the uh, uh, because of, of of the same kind of. Uh, conflicts in, in thinking. And this daughter and my wife communicate very well, uh, much better than my other daughter and my wife. And, and uh, uh, if, if you can remember, if, if anybody can remember the, the other word that uh, Rich, you, Rich Lack uses besides dialectical, it'll be very helpful. I, I've been looking it up for 10 minutes and it, and it didn't come up. Uh, but but to me that's that's one of the very most basic things, and it's why Emily can talk so well to her uh, daughter, and she, she and I uh, want to strangle each other after two or three minutes. We we understand that about ourselves, and and we're we're able to laugh and keep going, and and explain it that we're both firstborn Capricorns who who butt heads. <laughs>
4: i think i think there's something interesting about disagreeing with people Mm. we expect to agree with Mm. Mm. i think it's particularly hard (laughs) because you just think like you are the last person on this planet who i expect to be reasonable right and then that person says something you disagree with and it is such a shock and such a disappointment uh You know, and I also find, I mean, in my, you know, in my, in my life, so, you know, a lot of the times when you're with your family, right, there's sort of a lot of things going on, sometimes it's after work, sometimes you're tired, you know, everybody's there, and it's just, you don't have the patience and the time to sit down and say, you know, tell me more, like, tell me about why you believe that. it's like, oh, my God, how can you believe that? (laughs) Right, you sort of take the shortcut, assuming that that the other person will forgive you because they're mm-hmm. your spouse, and turns out they're human and they just get annoyed.
5: <laughs> but it's easy enough for 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 me to accept uh, Ken's unreasonable thinking that I should think like a uh, lawyer.
4: Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right.
3: David. David Allen. <laughs> We have to notice that Ham's daughter, Tatiana, was uh, about to log on here almost certainly because she got a mistaken Zoom link. Um, So to go back in the conversation very quickly, um, your use of the AI word cloud to get, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, automaton responses, strikes me as behavioral, as contrasted with psychoanalytic approach to these things, which, of course, is where therapy is these days. But if I can go a next step here, and uh, though I did sock real uh, uh, and never did anything professionally with it, uh, what you say rings so clear, so loud, the dyad, and so forth. I, uh, You're... Uh, You're focused on the dyadic uh, exchanges and the dynamics there, but you also uh, look beyond, you saw what happens, Uh, you proposed looking at uh, the larger impact when these two come together and even, even you didn't use the word cultural, but cultural impacts people beyond that. If I could, Try to take us there because several people have brought this up so what do we do beyond the diet and certainly it's where my concerns and my heart are as well um i very much want to be able to talk to my sister and i can't it's very successful very powerful person uh nationally even um because we're on opposite sides um What in the hell do you do when somebody believes uh, about Jewish space lasers and uh, pedophiles drinking the blood of children? And (laughs) no, they live in another universe. Uh, Let me suggest a path and then I'm very intrigued by your response. Uh, When I think about moving beyond the dyad to the larger social outcomes, which I think is the great challenge in psychology and social psychology and sociology. Uh, When I think about that, uh, my uh, gospel, if you please, is that where we try to go is to find a place between. Now, we don't agree with what that person says and they don't agree with us, but finding a common ground turns out to be essential to be able to live in the same place, Of course, I'm trying to make the point that that's extremely hard to do with people who live in what amounts to, let's say, in a fantasy world. Uh, So I'm trying to set up a very difficult problem, then asking about, so how about moving beyond the dyad to uh, a world in which we try to find uh, some common ground, as I said, for me, a matter of gospel. And thanks for letting me go on. Sorry about that. (laughs)
4: that's all right um you know different people have different gospels um and maybe it's just because you know everybody sort of sticks to what they understand and what they know how to do um i always end up thinking that the ultimate cause of sort of big changes in society and big social you know movements and sort of big cultural changes, is still the behavior of individual humans, right? It's just when we add up a whole lot of individual humans, we get a social movement. Um, And so the question becomes, if we have something worthwhile, can we sort of spread it quickly to very large numbers of people? Um, So, you know, something like you know, you take COVID vaccines, for example, right? So this is a space that I've spent a lot of time with. Um, And that's exactly a space where the effort has been about persuasion, right? The effort has been, can we get needles into arms? Um, And almost every study testing approaches to vaccine persuasion has failed, right? There is just... You know, we know that people sort of trust their you know, primary care physician more than they trust people on TV. Like we know these sort of differentials, right? But if you control who is talking and you give them different ways of speaking, nothing gets people persuaded who don't want to get vaccinated. Um, and what we've seen over time is a real sort of erosion in trust in science and trust in medicine. So one of the things we're trying to do right now is uh, be in touch with the way we train physicians to give them the tools to have conversations with patients that rebuild trust, right? I mean, all of our doctors get an unbelievable amount of clinical training. They get very, very little communication training. And most of that is not based on any empirical evidence. Right. It's sort of something somebody came up with that made sense at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, if we're talking about societal change, right, you know, you need to pick a topic and you need to pick kind of your approach to getting a lot of people uh, engaged with that topic. Uh Medical conflict has an interesting feature, which is that doctors want to have better conversations with patients, right? They don't want to be yelled at. If you take your average, you know, liberal and conservative and you say, We're going to teach you to talk to each other nicer, most of them will say, I am just fine <laughs> yelling at this person. I don't actually want to talk to them nicer, <laughs> right? Where there is some context where the people you're trying to intervene on actually want the help. Right. And so then if you intervene in those spaces, you have a little bit more of a hope. Um, So I think we just need to be sort of judicious about, okay, what's a toolkit that we can give to people that's effective, that's easy, where they want to use it, where they will get benefits from using it and where there's there's lots of people we can impact. Um, So my current uh, sort of my 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 current obsession is Uh, teaching physicians to talk to patients differently. So there's less yelling, Um, but that's, you know, that's a small example, right? There's sort of lots of spaces, but I just think we need to be more precise.
3: So you're making the point that virality, if I might, uh, Mm -hmm. spreading the idea in a very viral fashion, which gets us to inflections and tipping points. Mm -hmm. And then of course we see Warnock even overcame the governor Uh, who stupidly supported this impossible candidate. Uh, And now you've got two sides against each other, but um,
6: at least it's a place to go. I should shut up and I wanna hear what Em has to say. Uh, George, Alan. George, sorry. Uh, I'd, I'd dearly love to know uh, how to communicate when your adversary is a multi-layered bureaucracy <laughs> and you're looking for an ally uh, in order for that ally within the multi-layered bureaucracy, in this case, the United States government and generally the Department of Defense, to uh, persuade others that there would be mutual benefit in addressing a problem such as the ones I've had to deal with, uh, the sequelae of nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, or how many military bases can you put on Guam before the people on Guam uh, make it untenable to put any more there? Uh, That sort of thing, where you've got two or three or four layers of decision makers, uh, and how does one approach that uh, in order to, I'm really looking for how you get the first door unlocked.
4: You know, what, so what you just told uh, reminds me of two things. One is sort of, you know, the fundamental thing we teach in every negotiation class about understanding people's interests, right? If somebody doesn't want to talk to you, why don't, why don't they want to talk to you and what are they actually interested in talking about? Um, And the other, the other thing that it reminded me of is I
8: spend a lot of
4: time working with people from the federal mediation and Conciliation service. And there's a gentleman there who is a mediator who says your first job in a mediation is to get people to tell their story.
6: Hmm.
4: Right. So it sounds like what your classmate does is he gets a person to tell their story, and then no, he says ah, this is yeah. this is your story. this is what's important to you. Now let me reshape it to come up with a solution for how it can be used to our mutual benefit.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: You know it's
4: a lot of it's a lot of asking questions and a lot of sort of hearing what people have to say about themselves and revealing what ultimately matters to them. this
8: oh. There's so many questions that have I've, I've just been generating as you've been talking. And uh, George, I'm going to take away what you said about uh, it's tremendously important to litigate about something they care about rather than something you care about. Um, that's that's fantastic, and it will stay with me. Um, so, getting the person to tell their story uh, as a as a clinical psychologist, the question is how long is that going to take?
6: <laughs> mm-hmm.
8: that, that can take a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. that can take, two years. That can take five years uh-huh. um, and so i think that you know our ears just really have to be listening all the time i'm also thinking of another example where i found out that to be true which is that i've run groups uh support groups for people who are struggling with the issue of having a disabled infant or a, a very small child and when a new person comes into the group um they're uh their entry card is to tell their story. Um, and that that has to happen um, before anybody else in the group can, can relate to them. So I can see how that would be very important in negotiation. Um, my, uh, one of my questions was, I think about people who say, well, it takes a generation to create a change. So for example, around seat belts. Um, and I was thinking that it had to become clear to people that it was in their interests to have a seatbelt. Um, I think if we think about uh, same-sex marriage, you know, it, it gets to be, OK, they're talking about my cousin. You know, they're talking about grandpa maybe, um, that it gets to be in their interest. And I'm wondering, uh, I'm assuming that people have studied differences between incremental change, and I'm wondering if there are any examples of sudden change. That take place within maybe a year, two years. I I just don't know, and I'd be interested in that.
4: Yeah, you know, so again, sort of large-scale social movements are not sort of my area. But what I do hear all the time is that the you know gay rights movement is startling and how fast it happened.
6: Mm.
4: So people think of that as a fast one. (laughs) Uh, you know, and so of course, you know, I mean, if you compare it to, you know, race or if you compare it to, you know, gender equality, uh, it was like a lot of change really fast.
6: Julia so I can't think of five.
4: other things that are much faster than that that are that large scale.
6: To it took about 40 or 50 years of the gay rights movement.
4: Yeah. Different ways. But if you think about, you know, where we were in the nineties, where we are today, the last, you know. 15 years almost have been just well, very, I mean, very rapid change.
6: You have time to tipping point.
4: Yes. And then after
6: tipping point, it's really fast. I mean, that's yes. going to happen with internal combustion engines. Uh, <laughs> uh, but how you get to the tipping point is really, really difficult.
4: True, true, true. The only point I was making is that I can't think of anything that was much faster than that.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. It was really fun. And uh, can we get first dibs on your book when it comes out?
4: When yeah. it comes out, absolutely. And thank you for having me. This was a real pleasure. Um, I have to tell you, so we have some projects in mind that we're trying to work on in my lab to try to scale some of these interventions. Um, and I'm endlessly looking for uh, Sort of support in terms of ideas, and especially in terms of funding. Um, so, if anyone has any connections to uh, private foundations, for example, that are interested in funding sort of mutual understanding pro democracy types of movements, I would very much appreciate any introductions um, so we can keep doing the work.
0: Oh, okay, you're here, good, good, here, here. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Nice Thank to meet you. you. Bye, Goodbye, bye. is Associate Professor Julia Minson of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Her primary line of research addresses the psychology of disagreement. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast also streams on wioxradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.